Hello and welcome to Prestige, a podcast all about filmmaking, film theory and the films that contain them. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it might throw up. And as always we end the show with my personal favourite bit of the show, uh, films to recommend following this week's film. Be it thematic, be it actors, be it crew, be it we just want to talk about that film and we found a convoluted way to link it to the film we're talking about. Before we kick off with all that, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. So, Rob. Well, actually, I meet the cinema. Well, hurrah. Um, this is something that, post the birth of my daughter, happens very infrequently. But, as anyone who follows my Twitter knows, I'm a big fan of kaiju films. Uh, those who don't know, kaiju basically means giant monster, so Godzilla, that kind of thing. But it also means King Kong. King Kong is the, is the first ever kaiju film. So, the new one being out, I had to find a way to see it. So, Saturday afternoon, I made my way, leaving my, my wife and new one to their own devices. I went to see Kong Skull Island, and it's bloody brilliant. Right. Uh, if it is, and this is a whole other uh, show in its way, but I, I enjoy the current trend of big action films really being about something else, shall we mm. say. So it's you know you look at some of the excellent films they're really about Watergate. Um, this one is clearly a a uh, a war film in the same way that Logan is probably a western or a samurai movie. Uh, this is very set in you know uh, the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, it is a it is an analogy for a war film and human reactions to war, but in the world of of giant um, gorilla like King Kong. I don't want any more for fear of spoiling things for you, but it is. It is beautiful in the way that Mad Max is beautiful. It probably has more of a narrative than Mad Max, so I would be happy. Um, and it has great sort of roles throughout, so I can't recommend it enough. But I completely admit my own bias when it comes to giant monster movies. Mm. Right then. Sam. Yes. I thought, well, it's I, I've been recommending things I like too much, so it's time for a week of... Uh, Sam's been watching Meh again um, seeing as how that was what their segment was about a while ago and I well this, this is something I went into with great expectations um, it's the new Marvel Netflix series Iron Fist now I went into this with great with, with high expectations because um Primarily because of the way that Marvel have done really good things with the other three um, properties in the sort of Defenders mini universe. I mean, it's all within the MCU, but it's sort of the Defenders world within that. Um, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, and Daredevil. I enjoyed thoroughly all three of them. Well, I enjoyed Daredevil one and two, so I enjoyed the other four series very much. And so I went to the IFS. I was a bit, I was a bit concerned because, on paper, it looks like this is going to be um, less interesting than the others. And um, there's nothing you've mentioned films, or I suppose in this case, sort of mini films, TV series being about other things. And I couldn't really see what this could be about. Um, and I was right it's not really about anything and it's a bit disappointing it is kind of like Batman crossed with suits and that makes it sound amazing but it's really not amazing um, 
it, it's just a bit it's got the the preppy annoying um white collar white middle class upper middle class men thing of suits and then it's got the whiny billionaire playboy bit of batman and it hasn't got the cool part of either of those things and it's just yeah it's just a bit meh i don't know enough about the comics to say how true it was to the original um but i was very disappointed given as i said given the great work that netflix did with the other three properties in the series and now I'm left thinking well I want to see Defenders when it comes out so that means I've got to slog through the rest of this series in order for it to make sense mm. so this this is what's annoying me this week fair enough I have heard similar rumblings from, from the, uh, the internet that uh, it hasn't led up to the uh, previous three certainly mm. But I am still waiting through season one of Daredevil. Right. Okay. I, I think we can gather from the the phrase "waiting through" how you feel about it. Um, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I say this having Daredevil be my favourite comic book character ever. Mm. Uh, um. But yeah, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. Right. I'm sure it'll all pay off at some point and they'll go, oh, beautiful. But uh, so apparently it isn't It isn't rocking my world in the way something like um, Westworld is. Right, okay. But there we go. That's a, a story for another time, shall we say. Right, story for today is um, Back to the Future Part 2. Do you remember the future? Where? Back to the future. Are we back? We're back. Back to the Future Part 2 is the sequel to Robert Zemeckis' wildly successful original. Um, Michael J. Fox and Greta Lloyd reprised their original roles and Thomas F. Wilson returns playing a number of generations and iterations of the Tannen family. Uh, Marty and the Doc return to their time-travelling ways, although this time they go forward to 2015, which is not the 2015 we know, disappointingly. Um, (laughs) And they go forward in time in order to save Marty's son. Now, they do this successfully, but they unwittingly set off a series of events that alters Marty's timeline in 1985, and they have to return to 1955 to correct this. Um, Rob, your thoughts? This 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 trilogy just gets better and better, doesn't it? Really, just better and better. Um, I think that probably part two is my favourite of the three um, Back to Future films. I a I, I enjoy sci-fi um, and I enjoy future sci-fi uh, far more than sort of the the past sci-fi, shall we say. So I like the the, the uh, flash forward in time. I enjoy all the kind of the gadgets and the weirdness that uh, comes with that. But I think the thing I enjoy the most is probably the back end of the film, in which we relive the first film um, through someone else's eyes. I've always enjoyed, 
I suppose, those episodes of a TV series which takes known events and you see it through the eyes of somebody else. And I, 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 and I also, from a technological point of view, I enjoy the technological marvel in refilming, remaking whole chunks of the first film um, a second time round, almost seamlessly. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's brilliant. I think you know every plaud I laid in it last week. I can hear this Everyone's good in it. I think the the replacement of the actress for Jennifer works beautifully. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's great. Top to bottom, great. Sam. Yeah, you're gonna have to do some work on me for this one. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> I I don't feel the same about this series at all. I think the first one is brilliant. The third one is enjoyable, if slightly camp. Um, not that camp is unenjoyable at all. Scratch that. Let's start again. The third is just. Writersly enjoyable. Um, I think this second one dips. Okay. And I, I think actually, I I really like the opening sequences. the the problem The problem for me in this film is not the the move into the future. As you said, I I really enjoyed that that shift into the future with the the two Martys in the cafe and the sort of almost sort of Marx Brothers-esque, like them dressed the same way and and mm. Michael J. Fox jumping up and being being himself but someone else. Um, I enjoy sort of Biff and Griff, both played by Thomas F. Wilson. Um, I enjoy sort of the references, sly references to Goldie Wilson's son for Mayor and the remake of the skateboard chase scene. I really enjoyed all of those. I like the visualization of the McFly household through. I mean, you see it through Jennifer's eyes, and that's really cool. And I just think after that, it just goes a bit naff, and I don't like it. <laughs> what? What? Because, because for me, that there is there is a a deep enjoyment to seeing movie two. Marty run round movie one, ducking and weaving from the original narrative, mm. seeing things you know that uh, he did or that worked either way, and you get the feeling. And I, I, I stand by this. Talking about my theory of time travel from last week, that he was always there. Mm. The, 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 the timeline resets on the time. But I think that. So, what is it you don't enjoy about the end? Then I just. I mean, I was watching this with. I'm I'm going to call her my fiance because she hates that word. So, she, but she doesn't listen to this, so that's fine. Um, we watched this together last night, and she, she puts it. I mean, she, she didn't didn't even particularly like the beginning. I don't think, but she tended to see that that last thing as. A bunch of run-on sentences, and it it was just like a a fairly young secondary school child writing a story, saying, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and I kind of agree. It just felt like the the plot sort of ran away with Robert Zemeckis a bit, like every time they achieve something, so you got um, you have sort of. Marty getting his hand on the the almanac for the first time, 
then you have, oh, we've got to complicate this, so we've got to make something else happen. So, of course, he opens it and he finds out that it's it, the dust jacket had been switched. Like, it, it mm. just just felt like things were, were, like there were several, could have been end points to this narrative. And you just felt that it, the this story was just getting ahead of itself. And this is partly to do with the fact that two and three were obviously filmed back to back. And you have... Um, those references to 1885 appearing right at the beginning with with Doc hitting the flickering display and saying, oh, must get that fixed. And there are nods to the past right at the beginning. And it just... I I don't know. I I just feel that this... the, The first narrative felt coherent and it felt like there was a rounded story was being told. This second one just felt a bit like it was a series of short stories stuck together. Okay. I see what you're saying. I see it doesn't have the... Like, the first film exists as a perfect unit. Mm. It exists as, as a sort of a lump um, that you can categorise. Um... Whereas I think the second one feels a thing we've come across quite a few times on this in, in this season is the idea of like a middle film being a bit of a filler, mm. and we don't really doesn't really doesn't really have it has a start and an end, but not really start and end narratively. You kind of get used to that. You, you then build on a three film middle and end. Mm. If that makes sense, and I, I, I think it can suffer because of that. Yeah, I do. I do think this suffers because of that, and it maybe felt like <clears throat> they should have explored that moving forward to the future more. They could have. It felt to me like there there was a great film that they could have built around, like trying to save Marty's son right at the beginning, um, mm. and the and before the almanac stuff, but the the whole. Like it's obvious Marty's son is going to be involved in a robbery, and because of his involvement with Griff, he gets um, he gets caught, and and that's what happened. It felt felt like I think they should have made more of that because when they do go back to the past, it just felt a bit oh, are we doing this again? Are we retreading old ground again? Okay, so I see what you're saying. I saw it as a, a lovely re-exploration of that, whereas you saw it as just a, a reworking of mm. that. I think, well, that, that's it. It's, it's on the line between re-exploration and reworking. But, yeah, I, I felt the, there, were, there were times when it was sort of engaging with the first film. There was, there was nice sort of when, when you have Michael J. Fox shuffling under the car that was nice, and nice, that felt like a nice sort of um, re-exploration, as you say. But I think too often I just felt like this was piggybacking on the success of the first film. Mm. I, 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 I disagree fundamentally with what you're okay. saying, um, but I, I do. I can see your points of view, but I think I still. I just think I think it's like. It's like it's like when you have a prequel or, or a sequel to a um, a, a love franchise. It's nice. It's like, like, like we talked about before um, Sunset from the last film. 
Like we didn't need before sunset in any way, but it just felt nice to be back with characters. Mm. And this felt the same. Um, I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the, uh, the 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 things it's saying. I enjoyed the world it shows us. I agree. I could have done with more future, um, but I, I overall, I I just, I just think it's brilliant. I enjoy the as I mentioned last week the echoes of you know you're seeing the same things again. You're seeing the hoverboarding, the, the skateboarding skill, um, and. You know, this idea that before it ends up uh, buried in manure somewhere online. Mm. I enjoyed them, and they didn't feel forced um, in the way that often these kind of nods to previous entries can do. Mm. Well, let's, let's talk about the good things. I mean, you've, you've, you've not stopped talking about the good things about this film, but I want to, I want to put myself on the side of of an interested party in this because there is there is lots to be interested in about this film um and one one of the things that struck me is the nod to the dollars trilogy you have okay. the shot of the famous shot with the bulletproof vest and the fistful of dollars and clint eastwood and mm. i like that and i like the way that Biff is presented as someone who is. I don't know he he mm. is he likes to see himself as an outlaw doing good, and mm. and the film views him as an outlaw doing bad. So, I think that it comes back to that often said, um, and, and perfectly true phrase is that a good villain thinks they're the hero. Mm. Yeah. Like Biff feels that the world owes him all these things. Like, why wouldn't Lorraine love him? Yeah. He 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 feels he earned all the money he has. Um, and whether rightly or wrongly, he feels that this is all his to have, and that the world's his to take. Um, and I think you're right. He he does see himself as this kind of it's that it's you know it's very hard to, to watch the uh, alternative. 1985 and not think about the current political climate yes. especially in America yeah. um, you do have this kind of swaggering bully um, who maintains he's a businessman, uh, maintains his kind of I'm a real person a lot of it is you know, the gaudy auspiciousness of his world while still maintaining that he's a real real American kind of thing and there's there's that kind of dichotomy in his character that everything is obviously very opulent in where he lives and you know his childhood his childhood sweetheart in his mind childhood is um something that uh, he thought you know the, the having sweetheart makes him a uh, a man of the world but clearly giving her massive fake breasts um is is tied in with his opulence and his uh, sort of greedish nature mm. yeah that's that's something I, I think even even before you go back to that alternative nineteen five you have in the future the idea of opulence and excess is something. I mean, one of the first mm. things you see is the nineteenth Jaws film, which again it's it's a it's a nice nod to one of Spielberg's other films. Not Spielberg. This is Zemeckis. What's the connection? Yes. There's a link there. What's the link between Zemeckis and yes, Spielberg? Yes, there's a link between Zemeckis and Spielberg. Right, I I will I will think of this. It will come to me. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like the the, the, uh, 
the uh, opulence in the future you know they've got the uh, the convenience in many ways of the future everything everything's self-tying you know that kind of thing mm. and, and obviously it's fired uh, for sort of opulent living at, at an end point but I think the uh I'm trying to think what I'm trying to say here, but it, it, it's it's that kind of I don't know. I'm trying to think what I'm trying to say, but you have that theme running through it that that Biff has this opulent nature to him and this taking nature, you know. But even in the first film, he he is a bully. He takes you know labor from from Marty's dad, hmm. from George in the future and um, in the past, and it's that kind of idea that in his world he's he's right and he's doing all these things. Um, I think it's interesting that the film works very hard to reimagine the first film, but making sure it doesn't actually change anything. Um, because occasionally, when you watch um, sort of time travel films or film or film franchises which time travel, you end up undoing happy endings. Mm. Because if you achieve a happy ending in the first film. And then you go back and do something. Like it's shown very clearly that, he, that 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 Marty coming back doesn't actually change anything. Yeah, it doesn't actually um, sort of do anything at all to the, the timeline. Um, and the same with Biff. Biff, Biff obviously for a while does does meet his grandfather, his, his himself in the future, um, told us his grandfather, and gets um, this book which he does have on him for a while, um, but that still doesn't actually impact the future. Mm. Um, as, as obviously as far as we're aware, because obviously it's, uh, we don't actually see it. Um, but the, 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 it, it, it seems to be like a way to get around this whole reboot, reimagining, reworking that often franchises hit in the second film. We've talked about it in the past. Like if you do a second second film, you've got to find something else to say, find a different story to tell, while still keeping it linked to the first film. And you feel like they've done a lot of work here to try and make that work mm. without actually impacting anything it, it feels impactless if you see what I'm saying so do you think this so I'm just looking I've I've found a link um, Spielberg was an EP oh, actually on, the, on a later Bad Future film so I should have talked about that next week um, I will will give a link in the show notes for an article called Back to the Future wouldn't have been the same without Spielberg. So hurrah for me knowing, knowing a connection there when I didn't think I was. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, there's some, something interesting. The, this idea that um, there's been a revision of the past, but mm. it hasn't been affected and there was also this kind of this revision of the first film only it hasn't been affected so it's just not really a revision at all it's kind of an alternative version of the first film it's an alternative viewpoint to put a point a different point of view yeah. on the same events yeah. um and it, it you know the, the bit where uh, marty kind of drops the sandbags yes um from the like he's he's working hard to maintain the same story yeah so like, he's doing the the work you visually see him doing the work within the film to maintain the narrative of the first film how how do you mean what well, there's the, the the scene in which he drops down the um sandbags. yeah when he's crawling over the stage 
Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's to protect himself. Yes. From the first film. Because he knows that if he doesn't do that, he'll be stopped will impact the original film's intent. Right. Yeah. Are you with yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. So he, as a character... Is it, you know, rather than being a narrative trip behind the scenes where you know you, you, they literally show a character pulling the strings to make sure, so it kind of buys them that little bit of um, wiggle room. Because well, he's clearly caring about the first story, so he isn't going to do something suddenly to change the first story. Yes, and you have it's um, so, so he is saying at that point, well, I'm kind of stepping out of this second film a bit and just saving the first film. So when when he hmm. talks to Doc and Walkie Talkie, what? I, a, a subtext of what he's saying is we have to preserve the narrative of the first film. Exactly. I mean, there is a effort narratively and within the narrative mm. um, to protect the outcome of that first film because when you've had the success of that first film um, and and the well loved narrative, you can't mess with it. You can't suddenly undo that first mm. film because then the the work of the first film becomes pointless. You know, if you have, I mean, I'm sure we can, we can talk about this in different different tragedies. To be honest, if you have the second film, actually, discovering the first film, we didn't win. We had something else happened. Any sacrifice, any movement in that first film becomes pointless because it's undone by the next film. And that's and that's really clever. The way that nothing actually gets affected in the first film, mm. but there is this danger that it could be. You have sort of, he has to protect it as a, as a yes, job. and you have some Marty and Biff outside the door having a conversation, and then Marty gets slammed into by himself. You think they they were close to, there was close to being a problem there, and then there wasn't. Exactly, it, it, it's just it's unlike that. I enjoy that mm. kind of narrative trickery yeah. to it. So I'd say I'd say overall a, a mixed bag on the film, mixed opinion on the film. I, I'm not sure I convince you to its glory. Well, I I wouldn't um, say it's glory, but I'm 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 warming to the second half of the film. The more you talk about it, excellent, because it's brilliant. Right, recommendations. Right, so I've got two this mm. week. Um, one, I think that. Uh, People will agree with you. One, maybe they won't. So my first recommendation, I've gone pure act this week. I've gone actors I like. I followed them down the rabbit hole. So my first actor is uh, the star Michael J. Fox. I am, as we discussed briefly, a large fan of uh, Aaron Sorkin, uh, writer of The West Wing, writer of uh, the Network. He wrote in 1995 a film called The American President, Starring Michael Douglas and lots of the cast of West Wing, but it also does star Michael J. Fox as the chief of staff for Douglas's president. Um, he is certainly an older actor at that point than he is in um, Back to Future films, but he has that same kind of world weary but impish spark to him. Um, and it's a brilliant film with uh, Sorkin's wonderful writing. I-, I can't recommend it enough. It is sweet, romantic, and Political all at the same time, so yeah. But Michael Fox in it as Lewis Rothschild, the uh, what's it called? The uh, one of the uh, speechwriters for uh, my That's the one I think everyone might go with me on. The second one is one for just me, probably, and and my weird friend on Twitter, and that is a 2010 film, Piranha 3D. <laughs> 
Piranha 3D is a sequel to the original Piranha, Piranha films. It is in somewhat a parody or an homage to the sort of monster movies of the 80s. And it does star Christopher Lloyd and it does star Elizabeth Shue, who plays Jennifer in this film. Um, it is full of violence and blood and nudity and swearing and it is a cult B-movie in every sense of the word. Um, it stars Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell, people, isn't it? Um, Kelly Brook has a cat has, has a role in it. It is silly and stupid and I love it. So, yeah. Piranha 3D, 2010. Okay. It's the one I don't think Sam's going to join me recommending, but he really yeah, should. I don't think right, my recommendations. The first one is an actor... Um, and the first one is a really tenuous connection, and but it's as as Ron mentioned at the start of this podcast, we generally just look for films we like. Um, in some cases, so there won't necessarily be a huge um, connection there. And my link is the fact that the two boys watching Marty play video games. One of them was an eight-year-old who went on to have a successful acting career. Rob, name him. God, um, uh, I, I honestly don't know. Pirates of the Caribbean, Lord of the Rings, Orlando Bloom, Elijah Wood. Oh, I've, Elijah yeah, Wood. I've, I've got them confused. He's not in of the Caribbean. See, I, I get them <laughs> confused. They're the same, right? No. Oh God. No. <laughs> Anyway, so one of those eight-year-olds was larger with. Um, Fair enough. And my connection is to a film that I like. And uh, I believe Rob may have mentioned in the recommendations before, it strikes me as a sort of film that's right up his street. Um, it is the 1998 film The Faculty. It's brilliant, that's why it's brilliant. Yeah. Not the most obvious Elijah Wood film, or even a Lando Bloom, Bloom film, if you confuse them as I do. Um, and I think it is quite an obscure Lando <laughs> Bloom film, given he's not even <laughs> yes, it. Yes, quite. Um, and yeah, as I said, I think Rob may have mentioned it before, but it's a great film. It's also a great exponent of the high school film genre that we've mentioned several times on the podcast. Um, my other connection is because I really enjoyed the music of this film. I thoroughly enjoyed the opening sequence and part of that was to do with the music and I like the way that the Back to the Future theme is sort of interwoven with Marvin Berry's music at the end in the, the under, under the sea scenes. Um, and the composer is a guy called Alan Silvestri. And he worked on another Robert Zemeckis film, so there's a, there's a link there as well. Um, and this is another film that is not really thematically created, connected, but I'm going with it because I love the film. I loved it as a child and love it now, and it's the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Don't, don't think there's much that needs to be said about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There certainly isn't. It's, it's, it's yet... Yeah. Equally great. Two recommendations that I can rubber stamp approval from Rob as well. Nothing like Piranha 3D. More's the pity (laughs) in that respect. (laughs) One day, sir, one day you'll watch it, and then I'll show you. (laughs) Yes. 
Right, guys. Well, we will be back next week with the third and final part of Back to the Future, the future part three, surprisingly. Um, we're going back to the Wild West. Yes, this this is this is one I, I do enjoy. I like I like this, um, and perhaps we can revisit this Clint Eastwood idea as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, until then, find us both on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Rob Kaiju, and you can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And we'll see you back here next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.